0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the 68th edition of DF Direct Weekly, which, as the name heavily implies, uh, is our weekly show from Digital Foundry, talking about the latest gaming and technology news, and joining me this week, first of all, Will Judd, hello.
1: Hello, it's good to be here, as always, I'm so
0: excited. (laughs) As always, that (laughs) happens. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) of course, John
2: Linneman. I'm just going to miss the 69th episode, though. I wanted to be here for oh. episode 69, but this is, this will be my last one for a while, so... Oh, <laughs>
0: well, disappointment. on the flip side, though, Alex might be back That's true. for episode 69. Oh, nice! <laughs> <laughs> okay, look, let's go straight into our news topics. So this week we had a new Nintendo Direct, and uh, I believe it's referred to as a Shadow Drop uh, Portal 1 and Portal 2 were released for Nintendo Switch. And curiously, within 24 hours of that release, uh, we saw an early version of a modded rendition of Half-Life 2 running on Nintendo Switch 60 frames per second. Uh, I'm going to go to you first, John, because you've actually played these ports and um, word is that they're rather good.
2: Yeah, that's the thing that kind of surprised me about this is... uh it's one of the best switch ports on the surface that I think I've seen in quite some time. I mean, these are not like super demanding games, right? They've been around a long time. They shipped on 360 and PS3 as well, but fundamentally, so those versions were 720p at 30 frames per second, right? Uh, Switch is doing 1080p at 60 frames per second with, it looks like MSAA. I haven't confirmed hundred percent, but it looks, it's very, very sharp uh and yeah i mean it's just those games looking awesome running well on the switch although it's not i will have to wait i think oliver's doing the video on it but just from my own perception uh there are some occasional like minor like like hitches when right near uh a portal which in some instances so it's, it doesn't seem to be flawless in in portal 2 but it's pretty close and even like the big scenes seem to run very well so it looks like valve's done or whoever did the work i assume it's valve they've done some really fine work here and bringing portal over to the switch
0: mm-hmm. 60 frames per second that's a that's a big deal because as you say those last gen versions were capped at 30. yeah but on the on the flip side uh portal and portal 2 have always ran well on pc so i'm not massively surprised <laughs> Um, But let's talk about this mod. It's from uh, Oatmeal Dome, who's done quite a lot of switch hacking and uh, reverse engineering in the past. And I believe he used to talk about, um, he was sort of like identifying which emulators were used in specific switch titles. Maybe I've got that wrong, but I think that's the case. Let's talk about the mod. Obviously, there's a lot of limitations in
2: there. But John, talk me through this. How how does it look? So yeah this is the weird thing is that i guess just given the the engine similarities here uh it makes sense that it would work but it looks like very promising for something that wasn't optimized specifically for switch like this is obviously not intended to play half-life 2. it works shockingly well it's got you know the full menu system from that that you'd expect it just sort of maps right over from portal so it's got like the the different callouts for the buttons on switch the loading screens and menus have all been slightly modified to match what they were in portal uh so it actually feels almost like a game that could have shipped uh but it's not 100% flawless still where you know there's little hitches and skips when moving around the map and you know it kind of pauses and and has to load new data, which is not unexpected given that again, this is not really intended to do this, but it's extremely promising. And it makes me wonder if well one, I if he if he's getting results this good after like a day, it suggests that this is something that could be polished up significantly more so. But beyond that, uh I I feel like this is something Valve should consider doing as well. You know, like why not release the Half Life 2 games on Switch? it looks like it would run that was my immediate thought right it makes perfect sense yeah.
0: yeah i mean my thought was basically okay you're going to release portal and portal 2 that's great they're fantastic games but if you want to actually sort of make some money you'd put the half-life titles on there
2: yeah
0: <laughs> and it, and lo and behold here they are and you know it's a proof of concept at the very least as you know it's not as if we didn't know it couldn't be done but it was just you know looked really good for what we saw in that that t- tiny little teaser there any thoughts on this one, Will?
1: Yeah, I mean it's you know, a game that I think still really holds up today. Mm-hmm. I think loads of people will have either missed it when it came out, or will be thinking, oh yeah, that game was really fun. I wanna, you know, play it through. So I think it's absolutely amazing that it's, you know, apparently so easy to, to get this, you know, working at least in a basic state. Clearly there's still a lot of, you know, assets and whatever else that was left over. Because, you know, Portal 1 was apparently a mod of Half-Life 2 originally. So, you know, clearly there's the translation process is is quite, you know, minor. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's no reason why Valve wouldn't want to release Half-Life 2 for, you know, the Switch. I think it's a great way to get this awesome game in front of people that have never played it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think even if you have played it, the concept of just being able to go back to it after so many years and to play it in portable form factor actually has a, has a lot going for it. So yeah, we'd be watching this one with, uh, with a great deal of interest to see if anything comes of it. And I wonder if it will actually uh, possibly inspire Valve to produce those uh, those Half-Life 2 games on the Switch, because I think yeah. that would be fantastic.
2: The thing about this though, looking at between port- the Portal release in general, is that it sort of got me thinking about visual targets in modern games and how a lot of times I feel like what people are trying to do is out of step with what the switch can offer because you look at something like portal 2 and like just in terms of something that's attractive to the eye I think it looks really good like the, the art style is gorgeous it's super clean image quality it runs well but that's because it's you know based on somewhat older technology they're not pushing the envelope here I think this push towards like the modern rendering techniques and you know shadow maps everywhere and and just Pushing the complexity of rendering up, the Switch can handle these things, but it always comes at a pretty steep cost in terms of image quality and performance, right? And this is something Nintendo typically has dialed back. They, they keep these things relatively conservative and focus on delivering something that looks great within the confines of Switch. And I really think that's the secret to making something that looks great on hardware like this. Trying to shovel your high-end Unreal Engine 4 game onto the Switch doesn't usually work very well. Like it's possible, but the results are not like actually attractive. You wouldn't want to play it. That's what I'm saying.
0: Do you think there's a library of um, titles from the Xbox 360 era that could actually work really well on the Switch, which haven't been tapped into?
2: Absolutely, especially like doing that PS3 1080p video really sort of opened my eyes again to how there's actually good looking stuff from that era still around the stuff that wasn't trying to push the te- technical envelope uh, necessarily but instead focusing on smooth performance uh, clean image quality and just you know an appealing art style I think that's the, kind of the secret keep your technology more conservative um, obviously this becomes a problem if you're making like a big multi-platform release and you want to release it on on all platforms and switch then you're kind of at the mercy of that Uh, I mean, like, one of the things they showed at the Nintendo Direct this week was Sonic Frontiers, which, you know, we were already not loving what we saw of it, but they showed the Switch version this time, and the cutbacks are pretty severe, to say the least. And you're just like, yeah, this doesn't really... Like, technically it works on Switch, but it also kind (laughs) of doesn't. Yeah.
1: I wonder if that'll be kind of like a... Pokemon Legends, Arceus kind of situation where, you know, they've done the open world thing because they know that's the thing that people
2: like these days, but it just doesn't really suit the confines of the hardware that well. I don't think this, you know, you look at something like Zelda Breath of the Wild, you look at the Xenoblade stuff, you can do beautiful open world and switch, right? It's not always that. I think in the case of Pokemon, it's, it's a different situation than trying to port a high-end game down to the switch where... You know what I mean? Because that's that's kind of just, you know, it's a different kind of thing.
0: Okay, I'm going to move on to the next news topic now, but it's kind of related to that. I've just shunted it up the uh, up the order here since it is related. Um We were talking about all things Nintendo Directs there, and there was the shadow drop of Portal, but also we had the reveal of uh, Near Automata coming to Switch. Or oh, sorry, <laughs> according to the trailer, it's actually called Near Near Od- Automata. Automata. Uh, automata. Automata. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, so this is actually one of the best games of the last generation. It's got a massive following. It's a brilliant title. It did have performance issues on PlayStation 4. Now it's coming to Switch. Yeah, John, how do you think this one has been achieved?
2: So, uh, obviously, the game has improved a little bit over time in terms of optimization. I believe the X... Ex- I only played the Xbox version on a more powerful Xbox, but from what I understand, the <laughs> Xbox One original is like 900p, like the PS4 version, so it's kind of comparable. Right. Okay. So we're kind of in that situation where it's almost like a, a Doom 2016 kind of situation where those games are targeting 60 FPS on those consoles. So coming to Switch then, it's pretty easy to start by having the frame rate, which is what they've done, And according to uh one of their tweets they're suggesting that it's 1080p native docked and 720p portable but half the frame rate and obviously with visual cutbacks as well wow because it didn't look 1080p in the trailer it did not so the question then is you know when developers are Specify this stuff, you have to take it with a grain of salt, right? Like, they could very well just be saying this is the target output from the system, that's not the actual rendering resolution. Obviously, we'll have to find out when we get our hands on it what the actual res is. So, which we can do, yeah.
0: I mean, it does seem like a rather um, compromised port from what I saw, but at the same time, it you know, it seemed to have the major beats in there. Uh, But at the same time, I do wonder to what extent they have paired back beyond. Um, that the frame rate alone. I seem to recall that the uh, uh, the game had this galactically expensive global illumination solution uh, on other consoles and on the PC. And on the PC side, there was actually uh, I think Alex pointed out that there was a mod that paired it back with very little impact to the to the quality, which dramatically improved performance. So maybe there are optimizations there, but it does strike me as somewhat optimistic to suggest that Neil. Uh, or, or was it automata? Automata? Or, or <laughs> I can't remember. Automata. Oh, yeah. <laughs> automata. Automata. Uh, automata. <laughs> um, yeah, it does strike me as somewhat uh, optimistic that it's running at 1080p, even with half the frame rate compared to a PlayStation 4. Yeah, I agree. And uh, the evidence of my own eyes suggests that something's up there. But, um, you know, it's another one of these games where I think you know it's going to work out pretty well on the switch and simply the ability to have it as a portable experience that's kind of always the saving grace as long as the performance is consistent
2: right i'm actually curious how it runs on steam deck given that the pc version was kind of notorious for issues but i assume well i mean do you guys have any experience with that i haven't tested it to be honest with you john
0: You'd, you'd, I'm I'm wondering. You'd think that a machine that could run Cyberpunk fairly well could do uh,
2: Neo Automata. You'd th- you <laughs> you'd think. think. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, you're so, right.
2: That game is is definitely weird in terms of performance, but uh, I will say though, I'm I'm happy that they've opted to actually do a port rather than a cloud version, because I feel like I, I'm not a fan of the cloud versions, especially the way it works on Switch is really bad. Like you don't have a good experience. It's like it's like watching a, a low bitrate YouTube video that has stuttering.
0: Right, because that is a this is a Square Enix title, right? And traditionally, they have gone down the cloud route for their more advanced titles, right?
2: They have. But I guess the thing to consider is that the, the actual technical development of this game was done by Platinum Games, who does have experience with the Switch hardware. So I can see why they would probably... Not only would they deem it possible, but given some of the situations with Platinum over the last couple of years or so, I assume they, they wanted the work. Right. Right. Uh-huh. Like, like why would you not? So <laughs> I'm sure they were like, yes, we can port it. No problem. We'll do it.
0: <laughs> well, I'll be really looking forward to taking a look at that. I believe it's October that's coming out, something like that. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll definitely be all over that once we've got code in our hands. But let's move on to the next topic. So this one is actually a really interesting story. Earlier on in the week, uh, Cyberpunk 27, uh, 2077 received a patch that essentially removed the DLSS functionality, replacing it with FSR 2.0. And the advantages there are obvious, right? Essentially, a uh, smart upscaling solution that's limited to one brand of uh, GPU, now basically runs on all of them. Still early work, but the potential here is quite fascinating. And uh, Will, you've actually been speaking to the modder here, and the story gets more interesting the more we learned about it, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I was speaking to Potato of Doom in an interview (laughs) that I guess will run on uh, Eurogamer. It's, It's a good name, isn't it? uh we'll run on Eurogamer later i think you're referring and... to potato of
0: doom 1337.
1: oh yeah yeah sorry his full title Potato <laughs> yes of doom full, full hacker
0: alias <laughs>
1: yep i'm surprised we didn't get some xxx on the end in the start as well but uh <laughs> not this time but yeah so he apparently had started work on this um like a few weeks ago um when it was first announced that fsr was going to be open sourced and so he kind of had some template code kind of working and then, as soon as AMD released the FSR, um, you know, code, he slotted that in, and it basically just worked almost right away, um, which is kind of insane. Because I guess you know, FSR 2.0 and DLSS have very similar inputs, so you can do some, you know, clever debugging and whatever to figure out what bits need to go where, and then you end up with just a DLL that you can drop into the directory, uh, registry patch to run, and then yeah, you have FSR 2.0. and. The performance is, you know, as you would expect, it looks pretty good. I'd say there's still a few small things, like there's still trails behind cars, for example, that you'd probably want to squash ultimately. But I mean, as a starting point, it's it's really incredible. And the fact that, you know, you could potentially do the same thing
0: in other games is just awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, that, well, that was the thing, right? There's the, uh, the sort of tantalizing possibility that if you can do it on this title, Mm. There's the possibility that there's a framework that could be introduced that would work on um, a lot more DLSS titles, essentially the DLSS um, 2.0 games that use the the sort of drop-in DLL. Potentially, this could also be sort of backported to those games as well. Yeah,
1: I mean, he was saying that it would potentially take him like a couple of days to do another game. (laughs) So if that's the case, then, you know, he could, if he was motivated to, um you could get through the existing library at least of the most major releases pretty quickly and you know it might be possible as well if he has other people join the development team for it to be something that is kind of more universal and people can kind of try on their own and and adapt which would be really cool
0: i think the implication here is that um if the inputs to fsr 2.0 are essentially the same as dlss 2.0 then the onus on the developer to actually do official patches that have got really good support actually, you know, becomes a lot more of a, a, of a potential reality as opposed to, you know, something that's going to be quite difficult to implement. If this guy can do it on a game that isn't his, then, you know, the developer should be able to do it a lot more quickly. I think there are still issues, right? You were talking about the ghost trailing and, um, uh, I had a read of your interview, which is really interesting stuff. And he's talking about these masks, right? Uh, which seem to be key to to eliminating these artifacts. Can you go into that in a bit more depth?
1: So um, let me pull up his answer here. But basically, it's kind of like a Photoshop mask in that you can kind of tell the game which bits are meant to be kind of part of the scene and which ones are, you know, like actual, you know, which things are objects and which things are kind of like effects and stuff. Yeah. so um da-da-da-da-da. i think it's the case
0: that it's the the elements that don't have have motion vectors uh such as particle effects and whatnot um yeah it seems that, like it they're really difficult to track so they introduce these masks which basically say okay this area that's masked here this effect don't try and, and interpolate its motion because it hasn't got any i think yeah, that's exactly. essentially the way it works um yeah, I think we need to, uh, to to take a closer look at that. And um, obviously when your interview runs, we'll probably see a much better explanation than my one. But yeah, this is really interesting stuff. And I think, you know, it's interesting on two fronts. First of all, the whole modding situation is uh, uh, is potentially mouthwatering, but um, also um, the fact that if it is so much, if it has so much in common with DLSS, then uh, integration by the developer should be a lot more straightforward. Uh, any thoughts on this one, John?
2: Yeah, I mean, everything, that makes that, that's what's most interesting, right, is the ability to sort of implement this into DLSS 2.0 games. Uh, but specifically with Cyberpunk, the thing I was thinking about is just, so this is still one of the heaviest games when it comes to ray tracing features. And I think, as far as I know, Nvidia cards are pretty much the only place where you could really play this game with maxed out ray tracing at a reasonable frame rate. So I guess the question for me then is, with this mod, does it become possible to enjoy the game with ray tracing on an AMD card? Uh, Or is it still, like, beyond the realm of possibility in terms of frame rate?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think in this case, its acceleration is probably more of a headline feature. Because, you know, I don't think the ray tracing in Cyberpunk has historically been particularly performant on AMD. I guess it would help on the higher end cards, perhaps, but on the lower end, I think on the lower end cards, it's more the acceleration uh, factor that's that's of interest here.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't expect the lower end cards to be able to cope with this at all. But for the high end AMD cards, this is where it starts to get more interesting. I, I have not tested that myself. So I'm really just curious where the state of ray tracing performance is on those cards with this game since it is, I think, still the poster child for like amazing ray tracing in a game. Like it's one of the best out there. I
0: think a Potato of Doom was kind of worried that <laughs> um, CD Projekt Red would actually put out an official implementation ahead of his mod, uh, which which, <laughs> which didn't happen. Um, yeah. uh, but I think that's kind of the next step, right? I don't see why um, CD Projekt Red, Red wouldn't do that because they did support FSR 1.0. And again, if a modder can do it, then I'm sure CD Projekt Red could do it. So I'd really like to see official support on that. But um, I think that was one of the big surprises for FSR 1.0 back in the day when it first launched and went open source is that we saw all manner of different um, uh, mods and implementations outside of the official realm, right? And that was quite exciting to see that happen. And my concern with FSR 2.0 was that it's so much more advanced and uh, requires so many different inputs that we wouldn't see these mods. But it looks like the uh, modding spirit is alive and well, which I think is really exciting. Okay, so let's move on to our next news story. Um, This one was rumoured a couple of weeks ago, and um, it's kind of come to pass. Sony is launching a new range of peripherals, uh, monitors, headsets, very interesting, because on the face of it, you'd expect them to be tailored towards the PlayStation 5 audience. But actually, it seems like the core focus of it is more aimed at PC players. Will, what do you make of this? What, what First of all, what are the products and uh, what do you make of them based on their specs?
1: So we have a couple of monitors and we have three headsets. I've not looked too much at the headsets, but it looks like kind of an extension of the original kind of official headset that we saw with the launch of the PS5 in that it has, um, you know, 3D audio in in a good respect. It looks like similar to the console with kind of white and black. Um, the upper end model has noise canceling on it, which is pretty interesting and cool, not something we see a lot on high-end headsets. I think, you know, the Steel SteelSeries uh, uh, Arctis Nova Pro Wireless is the only one that I've tested um, and it works pretty well on that, but I think there's definitely room for improvement. I think the monitors are, are a little bit more interesting because we have one which is a 1080p 240 Hertz option, which is obviously not going to be useful for the PS5 really. Um, and there's a 4K 120 uh, Hertz option or that becomes 144 Hertz uh, on PC. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about that beyond the the fact that they look like they have a little PS5 like sticking out the front, is that, the HDR experience is supposedly um, a lot better than we come to expect for monitors of this price range. So in the US, the upper tier monitor is gonna be released for $900. And the fact that it actually has proper uh, you know, FALD and it has multiple zones, I think it has what less than 100 zones, but still enough, um, means that you're getting kind of impactful HDR at a price point that previously, this hasn't really been available. So I think it's a really big step forward there. And it's really cool that, you know, Sony are actually paying so much attention to PC players these days.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because as I said, you'd have thought the uh, the focus would be on PlayStation, but it seems to be much more of a PC PC focus. But with that said, I've got a supporter question here from a uh, Green Swede. <laughs> Greetings. Now that Sony is entering the PC monitor market with a 1080p and 4K option, why is it do you think that Sony is still neglecting 1440p? In my opinion, 1440p is a great sweet spot for monitors, and I don't understand why Sony still don't support native 1440p output on the PlayStation 5. So, John, first of all, coming to you because you're you're not a supporter. You're not a great fan of the 1440p format, right? Um, But that's one point of it. And and I guess the second point is... um, why don't Sony support native 1440 p It's
2: kind of weird, right? Oh, okay. So to clarify, <laughs> I have nothing against 1440p specifically. It's more that I, as somebody that does video editing all day, uh, it's really tough for me to go back to lower resolution monitors, right? Like the, the extra pixel real estate you get from that is uh really important towards smooth editing and know that so that's really it it's just a productivity thing right and because it's a pc monitor that's what stuck out to me but uh i think it's very frustrating that they don't offer scaling support for 1440p because you're right a lot of people have 1440p monitors and currently if you want to play on one of those screens with the ps5 you have to select 1080p which means you're upscaling 1080p to 1440p which is never going to look great when in reality it would be nice to be able to downscale from 4k to 1440p you you can do that that's how it should work you can do that on a lot of monitors um that's true some so that's the problem right yes some monitors do have this option right that's good but a lot of them don't and that's ultimately i think the problem here unfortunately i just don't think that they ever will do this because so microsoft has its foot in the pc space right that's where they're from and they take care of pc users with their specific features on the console side they always have and it was especially true with like xbox 360 remember the vga adapter i mean it had stuff like 1280 by like 1024 and stuff 12 you know all these different random resolutions you could do very pc like sony has always for whatever reason stuck very specifically to tv standards only and they will not offer these PC-like functions. And I really think they should reconsider that at some point.
0: Well, it's kind of weird, right? Because um, on the one hand, they've got a 1080p 240 hertz display, which you know it will will work on a PlayStation 5, but you won't be able to get 240 hertz from it. Um, But at the same time, they don't have... So that's presumably aimed at PC players uh, more than PlayStation owners but they don't have a 1440p, like 165 hertz display, which is kind of uh, swiftly approaching the sweet spot for PC gamers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like the, you know, the number of monitors that are sold nowadays, you know, a lot of them do tend to be 1440p and high refresh rate. That's where the market is growing the fastest. So it is surprising to see them not kind of target that segment if this is meant to be, you know, for PC players first. I think for a lot of people having a 4k uh, screen that is also high refresh rate is just too much for their computer to actually handle. You know, it's really hard to actually get high frame rates at 4k, even if you have the highest grade um, graphics cards well, and, and CPUs.
2: But, but VRR yeah. kind of saves the day, right? And it's True, better yeah. to have that as an option and then rely on, you know, stuff like DLSS or, you know, FSR to get you up to that resolution, right? I think so, anyway. Do we
0: actually have any information on what VRR is supported in these uh, in these monitors?
2: It says G-Sync certified. Oh, okay. That's pretty good.
1: So that would be, what, two and a half times the, the refresh rate window or whatever? So 48 to
2: 144 likely? Okay. 144, though. So <laughs> this monitor... There's things about these monitors and the PC stuff that... that so I will say on the good side, i like that sony's adding some tv-like features to this thing because uh pc the pc monitor space is pretty dire in terms of contrast quality like they just run full there's so many ips monitors with that blazing bright ips backlight and you just get bad black levels they don't look good it's it's not i i can't say anything positive about that that's why oled monitors are very appealing but this one actually does offer proper local dimming which can help a lot i haven't seen it in action so i don't know what kind of like Halloween there is i don't know if it has any input leg uh issues but it's there so that's positive but on the other side like one 144 hertz i, I i'll never understand that one because it doesn't divide into to so much content if you're just watching videos on youtube you're just doing anything it doesn't work you get tons of judder like your just desktop experience suffers cuz not everything is going to be at 140 so it's i assume it will also support 120 hertz which i think is the better choice 120 240 you want something that's divisible uh into 60 basically so but that, that's separate the other thing though is this is a 27 inch monitor and i think that's pretty tiny by today's standards right it's way too small for what i would want to use uh and you look at the cost it's 999 pounds right pretty sure you can find an lg oled for that or less sometimes in like the 48 inch range and maybe now the 42 i'm not sure uh but like given the choice between like uh, my i don't i'm curious to see what you guys think but if it's like well do you want to use a 42 inch oled monitor or do you want to use a 27 inch lcd it's like I
1: mean, come on! Now. I, I think your use case is probably not representative of, of a lot of people. Um, you know, most no, people know, aren't video true. editors. Most people don't have a desk that is massive enough to, you know, <laughs> be far enough have a, a, a TV that distance away, right? But twenty-seven. So though. I think twenty-seven is 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 where the vast majority of, of PC monitors uh, tend to be. I think wow. twenty-four inches was the standard for a long time. Now 27 is, is I think more of the sweet spot. We tend to see most monitors that are announced be in that kind of size range. And 32 is kind of now emerging as, you know, I, more of an option.
2: I guess I only complain about it because I want to see more PC monitors push a higher, sure, lo- yeah. cause I use a 38 inch ultra wide. That's, you know, 38, 40 pixels wide. And, uh, I really want that OLED monitor. was recently put out the qd oled but it's only 1440 it's like 3440 by 1440 or something and it's only 34 inch so it's it's a significant step down in terms of the number of pixels and size and very few pc monitor manufacturers are targeting what i think is the sweet spot which is that 38 inch ultra wide which is 21 by 10 aspect ratio by the way which is a really awesome aspect ratio Uh, i i would like to see more monitors in that range just more variety for, for you know a, l- a larger amount of choice, right? Like I can understand that a lot of users prefer the smaller screens given their desk size, but the market is packed with those options. There's so many, like they're almost all of that. We, we, we need more variation there, I think. Yeah,
0: I, I get where you're coming from, John, because um, I used to use a 34 inch ultra wide, which is essentially 27 inches <laughs> with, you know, extra real estate left and right and uh, i used that for a couple of years and i moved to a 48 inch oled and it's just for certainly for productivity it's a night and day improvement and certainly for gaming i actually think it's a night and day improvement but i can actually see that uh, some people might consider that to be somewhat overwhelming on a desktop <laughs> uh, but <laughs> yeah a little bit uh, but at the same it shrinks though right like it does that's the thing things... right that is the thing once <laughs> once you're once you're used to it suddenly you know, the 32 inches and the 27 inches actually look really, really small <laughs> and uh, unusable. Yeah, <laughs> But yeah, certainly for productivity, the reason I went with the 48 inch OLED is that um, when doing video editing, your preview window of your actual 4K content that you're doing is actually, you know, you're seeing more of the final image in the preview window. So that's kind of why I did it. And it's, it's paid off massively, but you do get that big hit in gaming because, um, not big hit, the... the sort of advantages in gaming uh, which is that with the oled you've just got amazing image quality stunning contrast uh, 120 hertz support you've got vrr you've got g-sync compatible it's it's just ticks every single box and more than that when you're not gaming you know you've got access to the netflix apps you've got um, netflix apps you've got uh, everything that you need to do things other than gaming and you've got a, a remote control so like which again is you know not exactly um standard kit on a pc monitor and i actually find using uh, you know just uh, navigating through functionality
2: on a monitor to be quite difficult oh yeah the the interface tends to be pretty poor yeah no but i think the the thing here that's interesting is rich you've been using this 48 inch oled since 2020 yeah right mm-hmm and it's it's your daily driver monitor absolutely yeah and you and you you work a lot like we all do so this thing is on all the time it's it's doing pc stuff all the time yeah and as far as i know you haven't had any like burn-in issues or any problems like that really no
0: nothing whatsoever but you know i do put in some basic uh protective measures which is you know i i have the taskbar scrolling away um if i'm not using the monitor i don't leave it turned on i You know, if I'm going out the room or whatever for an extended period of time, I will turn it off. Whereas with a normal monitor, you don't really care that much. So there is a certain amount of um, uh, taking care of it that I do. But it is as good as the day I bought it. So I don't really have any regrets about moving away from a, a traditional PC monitor towards an OLED uh, it was qu- quite expensive at the time, though, but these days it's it's not. Those 48 inches are you know cheaper than the Sony monitors we're talking about here, or certainly the $999 slash pound one. So uh, overall, it's been a massive win for me. But, um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious on a more sort of global strategic level why Sony is doing this. I guess it's just a good market to be in and uh, maybe they think they can bring some kind of brand value to this market that the others don't have and i i agree with you john if they're doubling down on good hdr that's a good place to start right
2: yeah mm-hmm. although this reminded me they they've done a monitor before do you remember the uh the playstation 3 3d monitor <laughs> anyone yeah i had it <laughs>
0: I've still got the glasses because I gave wow. it to, uh, to Eurogamer and forgot to give them the 3D glasses. So I've still got the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But that was great, wasn't it? Because uh, it had uh, some really innovative uses for 3D, like um, it, it actually polarised. It, wasn't it like polarised glasses? So split screen would actually show full screen for both players.
2: That's right, yeah, exactly.
0: Which was just fantastic. I think I'm really looking forward to seeing what Sony does here. I'd say these initial products are intriguing, but they don't actually excite me. The 999 one potentially is going to be uh, pretty good, except I've got a 48-inch OLED that would be the same price. Uh, The headsets, (laughs) uh, this is quite interesting because Sony actually do really good um, uh, audio headsets. You know, the noise cancelling ones are just absolutely brilliant. I've got a pair. Um, So, if they're bringing in their expertise from other areas of Sony into the gaming space, I think that's potentially exciting. But, yeah, interesting stuff. Um, And I guess, well, I guess we'll try and get hold of these products for review. I know you're itching to get hold of them, Will.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It'll be really fun to see how these compare to stuff that's already here.
0: So, yeah, we'll see uh, what goes on there and we'll report that back when we go hands on. Uh, but let's move on to the next topic. Okay, some good news here for uh, fans of the Steam Deck. Seems that the uh, success of the unit has prompted Valve to actually double Steam Deck production, uh, which is actually a really good move, bearing in mind we're in <laughs> supply-constrained times. John, what's your take on this?
2: Uh, I mean, that's good news because it's. I still don't have a Steam Deck, and <laughs> do you want one? I, I think. I think about it. Oh, I kind to do at this point, just because. Uh... Like, I'm genuinely impressed with how well they've been supporting this thing, and it's it seems like an amazing little device, and um, yeah, but obviously with the production woes that everyone's facing this year, it's fantastic news that they've managed to secure the parts necessary to ramp up production like this, so it seems like we're on the way towards general easy availability of the Steam Deck, which is great, and I, I hope it continues to do well for them, because... Uh, they've been doing some stuff in the PC space that I think the PC space really needs in terms of, like, performance targets. And I think having a device like this as a potentially big platform also kind of forces developers to pay a little bit more uh, mind to certain optimizations because uh, you want your PC games to run on this thing. And that actually pays off for higher-end PCs as well, right? Mm-hmm. So... Oh, it's all all good news on that front. Mm -hmm. Will, you've got a Steam Deck. Do you use it? (laughs)
1: That is the question, isn't it?
0: That is I think the question. Like
1: most uh, video game reviewers, um, I'm constantly (laughs) testing things, but I'm very rarely actually playing things, sadly. But I do have a trip coming up, so perhaps I'll take it along and uh, and use it. You know, the the few times that I have taken it on, like, trains and, and stuff like that, it's been so, so good to have access to PC games. You know, like, playing through, like, Portal, for example, is just so fun. And the fact that I can do it, you know, in, in a form factor that isn't that much bigger than a Switch is, is super good. Although I guess now I can also play that on the Switch. So any possibilities.
0: <laughs> do you have a Switch?
1: I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most okay. of the time it stays at home and I use it for kind of like, um, you know, Pokemon and fitnessy kind of games and dancing games, stuff like that. So it just kind of lives downstairs. But, you know, I think because of the pandemic, I just haven't been traveling that much, but you know before that i would take it with me whenever i went to you know eurogamer hq for example it was always really useful for that and i think the steam deck is now my go to device in, in that role
0: wow dancing games do you have a tiktok channel
1: <laughs> yeah a, a private one though uh, i'm not sure uh, i can share it here
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, yep. that's it for work that's okay
0: <laughs> i think from my perspective uh, this is well this is really good news obviously because it suggests that um, demand is exceeding supply and that in turn implies that steam deck has been a success and that in turn means that um you know the the future is looking bright for a device which was which was a gamble for them right so yeah i mean i'm really excited by this news and um i'm just kind of curious how they're going to evolve the steam deck whether we stick with the existing technology um and essentially make it smaller lighter increase battery life which I think, you know, they are weaknesses of the device. It is pretty chunky. I don't think it's overtly, unusably chunky, but it is chunky, (laughs) chunky, chunky. And um, the battery life is, well, that's the kind of thing which I find quite amusing about the Steam Deck is that Valve essentially leaves battery life down to you. Um, They give you the tools, they give you the estimated time that your battery will last on your current settings, then you can basically say, well, if I need extra time, I'm going to lower resolution, I'm going to lower settings, and uh, they leave it down to the user, and I did note actually on my last trip, I did actually take the Steam Deck and I was using, um, I was playing Control, and I was playing it at 40, 50 hertz. Because, you know, that's one of the great things about the Steam Deck is that, you know, even the screen is configurable. The refresh rate is, is just absolutely brilliant. So I was playing at like 40 hertz, 50 hertz. And uh, to begin with, um, the, the power consumption was actually really low. It's like 16 watts. So I was good for like, you know, two and a half hours. But when I moved into a bigger area, the frame rate was still fine. I was still at 40 or 50 hertz. I think it was 40. But the, uh, <laughs> the battery drawer was like 25 watts. And uh, yeah, it sort of was collapsing uh, <laughs> in terms of battery life. But I just love the configurability that this device has. The fact that it gives you all of these options. And the fact that despite being a really weak um, GPU in, and CPU in terms of um, the overall PC space, games seem to actually run rather well on it. So to the point where to the point where I do wonder where is Valve going to go next with this? Are they going to um basically do a die shrink and retain the existing spec or are they going to increase the specification or will it be a you know a um, a mixture of the two, you know maybe a sort of modest increase to performance um but with the majority of it being you know the majority of the die shrink's advantages being uh, sort of deployed for increased battery life and, and better thermals and stuff. Uh, and speaking of better thermals, um, there was a mod uh, released this week, or a potential sort of uh, DIY routes forwards to actually introduce larger SSDs um, into the Steam Deck, and it involved like um, you know rejigging some of the internals, and people got excited about it, but then Valve quickly shut it down. Did you uh, did you take a look at that one, Will?
1: Yeah, yeah. So. Obviously, we've kind of known for a while that Valve are, you know, open to people literally opening up their Steam decks and kind of, you know, having a look inside and potentially replacing components. They've been very open about the fact that they're, you know, happy for people to have a look, but they just don't want anyone to come to harm or, you know, to kind of damage their device accidentally.
0: <laughs> come to come to harm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, this guy uh, Lawrence uh, Yang uh, said that, you know, this is possible. You can do it, but if you start moving away thermal pads and if you put in um, you know an SSD that's bigger and is therefore drawing more power and creating more heat it could significantly shorten the life of your steam deck which is probably enough to put most people off i would say you know i think there's a lot of good yeah. options for expanding the storage you know with micro sd cards or you know by swapping in another um, ssd of the same size so hopefully most people won't be going down this route but it is really cool that, you know, somebody has figured out that it is possible, at least.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, let's move on to the next news topic. Uh, this one is uh, basically John going to be taking point on this one. Star Ocean, the Divine Force It's coming soon. Media has appeared on uh, YouTube. It's looking really interesting. It's not really our area of expertise, but John, you really are invested in this franchise, right?
2: Yeah, I well, I I enjoyed the first few games a lot. I didn't the, the most recent one before this was a huge letdown, uh, but this one looks more like a return to form, return to form. And the reason I wanted to highlight it here today was just to sort of raise awareness that the, it exists <laughs> because I don't know if Square Enix is doing a great job with that or not, but it was announced I think last year and the original trailer looked pretty rough, and I think that they've improved it a lot since then. Uh and it looks to be more in line with sort of the uh the scale and scope you would expect from the series rather than sort of like the constrained super low budget feeling game that was released last gen um and i'm i'm interested because almost certainly this is going to be their in-house technology again like it's not a, a mind-blowingly impressive looking game or anything it's clearly a cross-gen thing but uh we get to see tri technology in action again and traditionally they they have done some very impressive stuff, although less so in recent years. But their their old team like, uh, Valkyrie Profile Two on the PS2, where they're simulating like HDR pipelines and doing everything in like widescreen 60 FPS. It had a 1080i mode, not that it was true 1080i, but you know, it was very impressive technology in that game so i'm always interested to see what they can do there also if you recall last gen they did that remaster of starvation 4 you remember this rich right where they basically had like pc options in the menu you could run it up to native 4k they had all the anti-aliasing options you could turn detail levels up and down i mean they're they're, they're just like all right console players here's pc options in a console game which i thought was pretty nifty at the time but Uh, The big takeaway for me that I like about this is I've always loved the Star Ocean battle system, and it seems that they've integrated that into the world map without a separate battle screen, but it still seems to play more like classic Star Ocean. So it's not just like MMO style, where you just kind of, you know, walk up to something and you sit back and let things happen and occasionally use your cooldowns, uh, which, you know. So, and, you know, Sakuraba is back for the music, which I love. And. I Just go check out the presentation. The only thing I will say the caveat here is I first watched the whole Japanese presentation in it and then I went back and saw the English video and they actually put uh, the, the voice dub in the English trailer but all the lip sync stuff is still timed for the Japanese version so they clearly just took the Japanese trailer and just put the English voice over the top of it without actually doing the lip sync work yet uh, so if you see like really bad lip sync, I I don't think that's gonna be an issue with the final game. I think it's just a trailer thing. So, but yeah, and it's it's coming to uh, Xbox, PlayStation, PC. I think. Wow. Okay. Excellent
0: stuff. Okay, thanks for that, John. Well, let's move on to our supporter Q and A, which is essentially the part of the show where we ask our backers on the DF supporter program <laughs> to um, uh, to essentially. Issue fourth questions every week for us to answer. And uh, we're going to kick off this week uh, with a question, first of all, from leftist leftist hominid. And uh, this question here. If Alex Batalia from 2024 came through a time warp and told you that the Switch 2 had more capable rate-facing hardware than the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X, but had no way of showing proof, and then went back uh, to his own time would you believe him uh will what do you you know alex <laughs> you know what, what do you know about um, this one
1: i mean i guess it's not with you know it's it's within the realms of possibility i mean it would be a massive s- switch wouldn't it from you know <laughs> nintendo's typical um priorities. To say, thought, all right. I thought, I
0: thought you meant a massive switch. Like, oh yeah, I
1: mean, a... it could literally be a massive switch. We never know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, they're not uh, against using new technologies. They're all about kind of using them in a way that makes sense, and, and in a way that allows them to still kind of hit their own targets for quality and performance, right? So, you know, I could see a Switch Two that had some, you know, hardware accelerated race tracing. I don't know about more powerful than PS5 or Series X. That would be a heck of an ask for something that is essentially you know, a portable system. If it was slotting into a full-size gaming PC, then sure, why not? Um, but yeah, I would be disinclined to believe this particular <laughs> Alex Battaglia imposter from the future.
0: Well, that is the question, right, uh, John? Because there is actually two elements to this question, which is, first of all, whether a Switch 2 could have more capable RT than uh, the current generation consoles. But then there's this concept of Alex Batalia coming back from, yeah. through, through time to tell us about it. What do you make
2: of it? Yeah, the whole time travel thing, that would be far more interesting and impressive to me than whatever game console he's talking about. Like, how? how?
0: <laughs> I guess if he was coming back from 2024, why doesn't he bring the Switch 2 back with him? Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. that's but, the question, right? I mean unless no, unless there's... we're looking at a Terminator <laughs> scenario where you're essentially you know essentially, <laughs> you live know, naked completely <laughs> oh, dear.
2: which would be Oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> no, so as far as this concept, I do think it's it's a it would be a far reach just because of the thermal and power consumption constraints that you face with doing a portable system. But there is you know the only the only hint that i could see that anything like this could even be possible is the fact that nintendo is working with nvidia on this stuff right uh and nvidia traditionally has much more capable ray tracing features in their hardware now would they implement that in a tegra class kind of you know the small mobile chipset in a way that would actually be that powerful probably not i mean i assume they could do something but it's just again the battery and power and heat concerns are a significant issue but you know nvidia certainly has a better chance at doing portable ray tracing that's decent than if they were using amd based on the historical precedent i would say but and but the thing is though is like i i think there's i have to say i'm i'm a little bit impressed with what seems to be possible what developers are are coming up with creative solutions to ray tracing now it seems like uh, I was kind of blown away that Forza Motorsport turned 10, and they wouldn't promise this if they weren't delivering it. But the idea that they're doing both ray traced reflections and global illumination at 60 FPS in the next game—that's uh, that's super impressive, right? Like if if you were saying in 2020, like you would think the consoles would be able to do that at at that frame rate. I mean, I I would have a hard time believing it, but there it is. So there there is there's definitely room to grow there and i suspect that kind of optimization work also helps out on the pc side you know developers finding tricks to improve the the speed in this area and then if switch comes along a new switch and it does have some ray tracing features you know could, could work out there as well you see
0: i'm having problems with the conceit of this question if it if it was just do you think the switch to had more capable RT hardware than PS5 and Series X. That's one question. But it's the the, the notion of uh, Alex Battaglia telling us that it's got more <laughs> RT power than those consoles. You know, I trust Alex. And, you know, obviously he knows yeah. his stuff about RT. I think it's, uh, as, as, a, true. A, as a concept, it, it doesn't seem plausible. And I don't think it's really the way Nintendo would, would roll um, with, with no. that particular hardware. But you know, if it was Alex telling us, then I probably would believe him. You know, you have no choice but to
2: believe it. That's true. Yeah, uh,
0: I do take issue with the uh, the word "time warp," though. It would be a a temporal rift, and I use the word "temporal" and not "temporal," uh, as Alex likes to say. Uh, but let's let's move on to the next question. Uh, this one from Harborline 765 Does the observation that Nintendo has been doing some serious stockpiling of raw materials and supplies double what they had in 2019 point to a Super Switch launch within the year? Note that there are no first-party Nintendo-published releases confirmed beyond Splatoon 3 in September. Um, it's not true. Um, Breath of the Wild 2?
2: It's not. I don't think it's coming out this year. Ah, okay.
0: With it. Okay. It was delayed. Okay, anyway, let's go back to the question. No, There are no first-party Nintendo-published releases confirmed beyond Splatoon 3 in September, with Mario and Rabbids being Ubisoft and Pokemon being the Pokemon company. Do you think Nintendo is holding software back for a new platform launch, John?
2: well yeah, obviously they're holding it back. The next We can confirm it here today. Next Switch. Com- <laughs> no, actually, it's going to be called the new Nintendo Switch. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> okay. So, uh, no, uh, we can't really confirm anything on there. We don't know. But I would, I would not put that outside the realm of possibility. That if they have some sort of hardware in development, that they would want to ensure that there's more software ready for it. Uh, how much software? That's tough to say. Uh, i mean like the switch oled last year was sort of a minor refresh very nice piece of hardware though and they had metroid uh dread ready for that right which turned out to be a great showpiece game for that hardware um and i would assume they'd want something similar and maybe if they do have something coming up i could you know strategically it would make sense to launch it with breath of the wild too right yeah mm-hmm. like that that's the obvious thing there i sure. think.
0: so i did a bit of googling so. to see where the uh, basis of this question comes from and it seems to be a post on reset uh, era reset era whatever and uh basically <laughs> yeah. they're talking about um unconsolidated inventories and raw materials and supplies do seem to be massively ramped up compared to prior years far more so even than when they launched uh, the second-generation Mariko Switches and the Switch Lite, etc. So it kind of hints that something is on the horizon, but we, we kind of know that, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it's inconceivable that Nintendo won't be releasing a new machine, and to do that, they will need raw materials. Um, so I kind of think, going back to the question, that there will be a, a new Switch launch within the year. Uh, kind of makes sense at this point. When did the switch come out? It's like 20... 2017. 2017. So yeah. yeah, that would be a what a six year lifespan for the first switch, which seems mm. perfectly conceivable. Uh, any thoughts from you on this one, Will?
1: Well, I mean, the one thing I would say is that obviously we've had a lot of you know development in SoCs since the time of the original switch, so it would be very easy to take something that would be relatively power efficient and relatively cheap to produce. And still have it be a massive upgrade on what's currently in the Switch. So mm-hmm. seems about right for me.
2: Okay. Or maybe all those raw materials have been gathered together, tossed into a giant vault, and Miyamoto is jumping in there, Scrooge McDuck style. <laughs> <laughs> that is the other option. <laughs> well, <laughs> definitely one of those two.
0: Uh, well, if that's the case, maybe uh, Alex Batalia from the future could come back through time <laughs> to tell us all about it. <laughs> uh, but in, in, in the meantime let's move on to the next question this one from ang etf hello d dear df cast following audi's last interview i was wondering imagine being given free access to anyone in the industry for a candid heart-to-heart interview who would be as of today the people or team you'd love to have a chat with and what subjects would you want to discuss uh, so i'm guessing uh he's talking here about the interview that uh, you did with uh, randy linden right oh yeah um so that interview with uh, randy linden is currently available for retro tier supporters on the df supporter program. It's like over two hours of chats absolutely phenomenal stuff do check it out if you're a supporter and if you're not consider supporting but um going back to the question here will i'm going to go to you first because uh i'm curious what you make of this one who would you love to interview
1: Hmm, I think I'd be really keen to talk to the two Tims who are two of (laughs) kind of the lead um, kind of designers and directors of uh, Starcraft 2 and Warcraft 3. So they're currently at Frost Giant and they're making a new RTS which is called Stormgate and it looks really cool. Um, They're like Starcraft 1 was a massive game for me and Starcraft 2 is like what got me into Twitch streaming and just, you know, the industry in general, I would say, you know, the fact that it was a really vibrant esports scene and the fact that it, you know, st- still to this day remains relevant and there's still great commentating and great, um, you know, esports stuff going on. I'd love to see what they're thinking about, you know, how to move the RTS genre forward, because, you know, I think it's been a long time since we've seen a game come out that has actually really shifted what people expect from RTS. And I think there's still a lot of life left in the genre. So I'd be really curious to sit down with them and kind of see what they're working on behind closed doors. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: John thoughts. And there'd be so many, Uh, some ones that I would really love to do and hopefully do a project on sometime was uh, I still want to talk to John Romero specifically about Daikatana because I actually like that game quite a bit. And I would like to do a feature that sort of uh, tries to look at it for what it what it does right, and, you know, get get into some more of the history behind that. Just pick his brain on on that time and everything before and after as well. I also want to talk, I would love to talk with Tim Sweeney about Unreal 1, specifically the original game, the first Unreal Engine game, uh, because that's a very special game to me. And it was doing some amazing technology at the time. It was right during the, the rise of 3D graphics cards when they were really taken off that game really showcased what could be brought to the table with 3d cards so that would be great i would also love to sit down with uh hori from uh, m2 over in japan there because like he has such a rich history working on so many different games and like very retro focused right and one of the one of those guys that's just focused on like just this authentic authenticity creating the, the correct, proper experiences and really appreciates classic games for what they are and, you know, got to work on some himself. So uh, that's just off the top of my head, but there's plenty of others I would love to talk with.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, um, here's the thing, right? I mean, I said it in last week's Direct, but there's a wealth of stories about game development and those stories are in danger of just vanishing. You know, we, we don't know so much about early games development. And there's so many stories. We'd love to to talk to, to basically anyone who talked to uh, who developed key titles back in the day, or was present at key developers. I mean, for example, Ultimate Play the Games slash Rare. There's actually very very little that we know about you know their heyday because they are you know um, a, a quite a reclusive company, or at least they were up until uh, the Microsoft acquisition. So there's so much that we can do, but I'm going to sort of subvert the question here. Because I think there's actually a a kind of different interview concept that we could be considering here, which is essentially the reunion. So just as an example here, what if the original id crew that did Doom were reunited in a single room and the interview isn't so much an interview, but more sort of a guided discussion and we're more and we're more of a sort of fly on the wall. That would be a sort of new type of of interview concept that really excites me because I actually think, you know, when you're thinking about those stories and certainly when I'm reminiscing about the past, so much comes forth if you're actually talking to people who were there with you. And uh, yeah, I think the possibility for that would just be phenomenal. But the concept of getting the original id crew all in the same room together would be like uh, logistically highly
2: challenging. But Just, yeah. not impossible, right? So, well, we could always try. We could always try it by getting the original Mean Machines uh, crew together. Well, I've tried that, even talking. that's
0: quite difficult. So, you
2: know, <laughs> fair enough.
0: Fair enough. Okay, uh, let's move on to the next question. Uh, this one from Axel. Hello, guys. Question for John: Which CRT TVs would you recommend to play retro games that aren't crazy expensive? That's an interesting question, right?
2: yeah so i tend to prefer uh a nice trinitron consumer trinitrons can be pretty solid and you'll you would probably want something with at least s video or component video if you're in the us or scart if you're in europe uh obviously i mean i do like the professional monitors i i you know i have a bunch of them but the prices are ridiculous right now and i can't really recommend that unless you get a really good deal on it. And honestly, consumers TVs are still if you get a, a nice quality one, uh, they can offer a great experience and really excellent image quality. And the, the thing is, though, the thing about CRTs is, is that the, the inherent performance of the CRT itself is due to the underlying technology. So like even if you got the absolute cheapest, lowest quality CRT in the world, it would still outperform the best lcd panel ever made in terms of motion clarity. Y- uh, yeah,
0: but you know, there are some dodgy crts right.
2: But not not to say that it's better, right? Obviously, you there there's things you give up. The the point is though is like you don't need to go super high end for a crt to get the benefits of the crt. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And for classic low resolution content like that, uh just about anything can do as long as you know you'll find some of the some of the cheaper ones might have more obvious geometry issues and you know blooming issues and there are definitely problems to consider with crts but uh, also if you're in europe some ones that i would recommend looking at are the bang and olofsson models are quite nice Uh, they did a lot of high-end displays back in the day and obviously have since moved on but you can find those things all over the bio they line they're they're pretty good looking they're shadow mask tubes uh and they're not like super high line count but it does have this it has an an aesthetic that i would describe as very arcade monitor it looks like an old wells gardener arcade monitor or something uh which is not a bad thing that's it's a really good look for retro games so Mm -hmm. yeah
0: Yeah, i guess so i mean i'm just thinking back to um some of the events that we've been to that have had retro zones and they've had an assortment of crts there and there's ones where the tube actually looks like a tube uh, sort of with a set yeah. not a sort of flat <laughs> You don't you
2: don't want that. Uh those are pretty gnarly. I mean
0: Trinitrons are a pretty good bet those, I think is
2: the- Trinitrons are a good bet. The B and O's are a good bet. Uh if you find like a really nice sharp, those can be pretty good as well. Uh you know, but yeah, there's a lot. Don't get like a bottom of the barrel, like thirteen or twenty inch, like one of those like Walmart TVs as I called them uh they're they're bad Uh, and if you're in europe also check for 60 hertz support that's important not every crt supports 60 hertz you definitely want that and also if you're in europe don't don't get a hundred hertz one don't do that Mm -hmm. some of the very last standard def crts were 100 hertz and it was designed to eliminate 50 hertz flicker but you're essentially introducing like interpolation into it in a way uh that ends up creating kind of a ghost image that's not great and it's like digital circuitry that adds lag and just bad avoid so those are kind of the pitfalls to consider
0: fair enough let's move on to the next question this one from ts games uh hi guys a more theoretical question since simple spatial upscaling methods like fsr 1.0 or nis which is the NVIDIA alternative, are only on a per-frame basis and run on shader cores, wouldn't it be technically possible to integrate it into displays or TVs? So in case, if you're receiving a alert resolutions in the panel's native resolution, of course, the limits of spatial methods would still apply, but maybe it would look better than simple bilinear upscale. Thanks for your thoughts. Will, any ideas on this one?
1: I mean, I guess it could be possible. We've kind of seen something... Uh, you know vaguely similar with the shield tv that does kind of like an ai upscale which is i would say you know better than the average upscale you get on a tv set so yeah there's probably room for that i don't know how many people would care enough um that you a tv manufacturer would actually go to the trouble of implementing something like this especially if it required any kind of you know different hardware or or, or even you know just the software effort alone might be enough to sync it but Yeah, if if you had the budget to do it and you were a TV manufacturer, you could do something, I guess.
2: Right. They should start by just integrating nearest neighbor scaling. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the low-hanging fruit, right? Barely anybody... Like, we really want that, and, like, very few TVs offer that. And that's a shame.
0: Yeah, absolutely. John, um, I'm not really sure this is a good idea.
2: What do you think? Uh, I agree. I don't (laughs) think it's a good idea either. Uh, That's just adding extra potential latency to the chain um you know there's a lot of areas where this can go wrong and traditionally when it comes to like enhancing the image with post processing in this way or like just processing the signal tv manufacturers don't necessarily do a great job especially not for games you could end up with unwanted artifacts from it and just and honestly fsr 1.0 and the like it doesn't it's not it's not great and say it actually looks good right i i don't actually think it looks great i wouldn't want to use it so I actually think it's a bad idea, which is why I go back to the nearest neighbor stuff. I think just having sharp scaling options would help so much with low-res content. Like 720p, you, you know, you throw that on there, but if you properly scale it up to 4K with sharp pixels, it'll look totally fine. Mm-hmm. But when you blur the heck out of it with strong bilinear upscale... Uh, it does not look fine. Mm-hmm. So
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, on the PC side, at least, all of this stuff can be done at the driver level by the PC itself. I guess with the consoles, things are slightly more... Uh, there's a slightly increased level of potential so, there, but even so, I, I'm i not keen on the idea. So
2: there's stuff like the M cable that kind of does, right. you know, filter, right? But then also a, a while ago, like 10 years ago almost, remember Durante... Still doing sure. great stuff and helps with the Dark Souls uh, PC stuff. Uh, he developed a way to inject FXAA into an HDMI signal on a specific Black, Ma- Black Magic capture card, yeah. mm-hmm. so you could like input PS Three in there or Three Sixty and just automatically apply FF- FXAA to the image, which you know for some games was not a bad thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, FXAA would would work; could be done in in Mm -hmm. a tv but again don't think it's a good idea i always want it no (laughs) okay uh let's move on to the final question here from mark scully now now that alex isn't here (laughs) are we all in agreement that crisis isn't a particularly good game it's great from a graphical standpoint but the gameplay is a tad mediocre Uh, i'm gonna go to you first on this one will
1: I mean, I think this is slander. I don't think we can stand for this kind of thing. We built this channel on Crisis. Um, I, I I think the game totally holds up. You know, I I did actually go through and play through quite a few levels of uh, Crisis Three and you know Crisis One and Two as well. And I think the formula is still really really fun. I think you know the graphics are one thing, but I think the actual minute-to-minute gameplay is is pretty good.
0: I think it holds us. So so not a tad mediocre, John.
2: No, I think it's one of the best PC shooters ever made. Uh, I think it harkens back to a day when PC games were trying to push interesting concepts that weren't tightly scripted console style games, and you could do some really interesting stuff in there. Like the mix of stealth and action and offering that freedom within constraint is what make, makes it so appealing to play, right? Because it's not open world. Open world. You know my feelings on that but it's essentially just a, a map full of wandering around doing nothing most of the time and occasionally doing hot spots crisis is like here's a very big map it's not open world it's very carefully designed but it's big and here's your objectives and you have a huge like amount of freedom in terms of how you achieve those objectives how you approach them and it feels absolutely awesome to do this uh and I think that's one of the biggest parts about it that I love. And Crisis 2 and 3, I like them a lot as well. They're, they're slick, fun games. But Crisis 1, man, just a phenomenal game. And I'm so sad that we never got to see another shooter take this concept and, and go for it again.
0: Well, maybe the new Crisis uh, will do that. But yeah, I agree with you because the, the best bits of Crisis 3 for me are the bits where it's trying to be Crisis 1, where you're given a yeah. wide open area and various routes through and various strategies that you can deploy. But yeah, that's that's kind of the, the interesting thing from my perspective is that they seem to, it seems to coincide with the uh, move to the multi-platform realm, where the original formula didn't seem to be of interest to Crytek anymore. But the original is no. still still pretty phenomenal in my opinion. So
2: I have thought about this a lot though, and I do think the reason that you get sentiments like this comes down to the fact that if you approach this like a call of duty style game or just like a a normal shooter uh you could totally end up in a situation where you're not really having that much fun right it it depends on how you throw yourself at the game and you could argue that there's issues with that and there's definitely some things that could be polished up a little bit but it's not a game that you just run around and blast guys like you can if you want but it's not that fun to do it that way it's more about figuring out how to tackle these situations and using your vast availability of tools to do so. That makes it really interesting.
0: So, what would you like to see from Crisis Four, as as its
2: work in progress name is right now? I want to see a return to what made Crisis One great: uh, wider missions, uh, multi-tiered, complex objectives to achieve. I want to see destruction and physics pushed to the next level. And not like battlefield style where it just swaps in a model and you know i want like an evolution of what they were doing with crisis one where they had like those rigid body huts where every piece of the hut was its own object that could like splinter and blow off in directions i want to see that stuff taken to the next level i think they there's the potential for it. i hope they realize what people really want from crisis and, and just lean into it and if you combine all that with some of the mechanical improvements that Crisis Two and Three had, like the general feeling of of using the weapons, the the stealth kill stuff felt more polished and, and streamlined in those games. But if you combine that with the depth of classic Crisis, you could have something like really just phenomenal.
0: Mm-hmm. I think number one on my list after after all of that would be co-op. Um, oh
2: yeah, that would be amazing. Simply
0: because you know the whole sort of basis of the original game was that it was a team of. Agents in their nano suits, but you never actually really saw them act as a team, mm-hmm. which I think could be absolutely phenomenal. But it's just my thought. Any final thoughts on that one, Will?
1: No, I mean, the only thing is, I hope it arrives soon because I am super eager to play it.
0: <laughs>
2: Fair
1: enough. Uh,
2: I wouldn't count on that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: I don't think that's possible at all.
0: But I hope. Okay, that's it. That's the end of the show. And uh, we'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you did enjoy it, please do like, subscribe, share. Ring the bell for those notionally instant notifications no guarantees there that is my disclaimer df supporter program uh, yes join us uh, amazing bonus material early access phenomenal retro content as we discussed earlier amazing community it's just uh, it's the place to be if you love what we do uh, but that's all from us see you next week